Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will be with us today, enlighten our minds, and, and we pray that uh, this group will become more and more effective at shining the truth about your character of love into this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly, Redemption in Romans, and the title this week is Redemption for Jew and Gentile. And the memory text says... Therefore God, has, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. Romans 9.18. Any thoughts about the memory text? What does it mean? It sounds like God is arbitrary. The first thing I, asked, asked, I started asking questions. What does it mean is the first question I had written down here. Um, how about this question? Is there anyone on whom God does not want to have mercy? No. 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 Well, see, does that question often pop right into your mind? See, the question almost, uh, almost sounds arbitrary. Is there anyone God inflicts hardness upon? No. Is there anyone God uses his power to cause the hardening of heart? Or another way, does God use his power to prevent someone from conversion and instead forces them into rebellion and hardness of heart? No. Do you know this text is often used that way? To suggest that God will have mercy on some and he will force hardness upon others. In fact, that's taught about by some who argue God's sovereignty. God being sovereign, it's his right to do this and he's capable. This is actually called reform theology, a.k.a. Calvinism. And I've recently heard some things almost sounding like some of those ideas are infiltrating Adventism. And we, of course, come from a different background that, uh, that uh, respects free, free will to choose. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, ascribe to that type of thinking. So with that in mind, then what does it mean when, the, when the Paul goes on to talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? No. Well, let's read some scripture. Exodus 10, 20. And I quote from the scripture. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Well, the Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? We now have a thus saith the Lord. We know that God hardens hearts. Oh, we need to keep looking, keep reading. She says, she says to read on. And so maybe, maybe we should back up a little bit and read Exodus chapter 7, verse 22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord says. So that's kind of neutral. It just says, described what happened. His heart became hard. It didn't say who did it. And then what about Exodus 8.32? But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Okay, who did it here? Okay, so we have God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We have Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and we have Pharaoh hardening his heart. Which of these three are the inspired version? Okay, they're all inspired. So which of them is the right one? So how do we explain it? Brain research. Brain research. There's some truth in that. Yeah? Yes. Different people react differently to light that is given them, that they deserve here. And just by God revealing himself to Pharaoh, it caused him to rebel against God. She says that the, the different people react differently to light, and Pharaoh's reaction to light is what's hard. I, I like where you're going. We're going to expand that just a little bit further in just a moment. From our SDA Bible commentary in Romans 9.18... It says the following. In Exodus, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is sometimes described as self-produced and sometimes described as produced by God. In the Bible, God is often represented as doing that which he does not prevent. Paul here chooses the latter representation as better suited to his purposes in this context. So the Bible commentary is suggesting that in Romans, the reason it's described this way is because Paul is using the convention of ascribing to God that which God permits, but not, does not necessarily directly inflict. Do you all agree with that as, as how the Bible o- operates sometimes and describes God? 
Can you think of any other examples where God is, is given credit for doing that which he simply didn't prevent? The death of King Saul. And it says in the scriptures that, and we all know how King Saul died. He, he committed suicide and fell on his sword. And, and it says in scriptures that the Lord put him to death in one place. And in another place, it just simply says fall, Saul fell on his sword and committed suicide. Any other places like that? I'm not sure what the word is yeah, then the same passage you're reading here in, in uh, Romans chapter 9. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, good. And a good example. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, where at the end it says, To him that hath shall be more shall be given, and to him that hath not even that shall be taken away from him. Oh, yes, because we understand that the parable, that she says, the parable of the talents, he that has more will be given to him, he has not more that will be taken from him. And we understand that that's really describing a natural consequence. If you don't use it, you... Lose it, right. And if you invest your energies and talents, you expand your abilities. Yes? Back to Saul. Does it say we kill Saul or does David still say the Lord will kill Saul? It actually has it. It has um, both of those places. Before Saul's death, when they when they talked about um, you know David, his men were urging David to kill Saul. The uh, David said the Lord will kill Saul in his own time. But then later, after Saul was dead, it's reported in Chronicles that the Lord put Saul to death. But then it's recorded in First and First Samuel that Saul fell on a sword and committed suicide. So we have all all those things going on. So one one explanation is given our commentary is that God has given credit in Scripture for things He does not prevent. So this is one way we could understand the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But I think Margaret was leaning in another direction, and I like what Margaret was saying. Oh, yes, comment. Could it be that the truth is kind of like the sun? The sun melts wax and it hardens uh, dirt. Yeah, this is what she's saying. Yeah, this is another example uh, in, in your name? Dorothy. Dorothy and Margaret are saying basically the same thing, that the, the, the truth reacts differently on different hearts. Melts Melts butter, hardens clay. Some people are hardened by truth. Some people, well, I think that's exactly right. Um, so the process of hardening a heart, let's walk through the, the psychology of how a heart is hardened. Isn't a heart hardened by the process of choosing against the truth? Yes. Isn't that what happens? Now, can a heart be hardened if a heart, uh, in, in the same degree if that particular heart and mind is never presented with truth to choose upon? No. So did God reveal himself to Pharaoh more so than any other ruler of the ancient world? Every one of those ten plagues was a revelation of what? The truth about God, but also the impotence of the gods he was worshipping. I mean, imagine, imagine with, the, uh, with the second plague. Remember the second? Of course, they worshipped the Nile, and the first plague was the, was the plague of the water to blood. Now, but imagine the second plague. What was the second plague? Frogs. And they worship Heket. Heket was the frog god of Egypt. Now, what happened with the second plague? What was it, what was it actually? If you were there, what would you have experienced? How many frogs would you have seen? Potentially millions is what the description is. And then they, and then they died. So here you are. Do you think there's a lesson here? You're worshiping a frog, and you and your family have to now sweep up and get out all these piles and piles of rotting dead frogs. And then after you do this, you go and pray to the frog that you just swept up these rotting corpses of dead frogs. <laughs> do you think some party might go, wait a minute? You see? And this is what God was doing all along. They worshiped Beelzebub, the god of the flies, and they had a plague of flies come. And so every one of these plagues was designed to teach them that their gods are impotent. So Pharaoh had this, this truth to him over and over again, and his heart was convicted, and then the plague was lifted, and what, it, what happened? He chose to reject the truth and go the other direction. So the hardening of the heart, God is responsible for the presenting of the truth. Pharaoh is responsible for his decision in response to the truth. God didn't force his will. And so thus we can say God hardened his heart by presenting truth, but Pharaoh hardened his heart by rejecting it. Yes? We have another biblical example of Caiaphas, who rejected rejected, and finally a hundred soldiers first come to his bedroom and say, we've seen Jesus alive, and he chooses not to believe what he knows they're telling the truth. Right, yes, exactly. Caiaphas also rejecting truth, yes. It's interesting that 
when the, all the plagues came, Pharaoh relented at first in the midst of the plague. Right. And when God showed his mercy, right. he removed the plague. That, that's when he hardened his heart. Yes, he moved, yes, when the plagues were moved in mercy, then Pharaoh hardened, yes. So could it be possibly that God loved him so much and knew the patterns or the programming or whatever you want to call it of his heart that he probably had a pretty good idea of what his response would be. And as Pharaoh's reactions, he still was able to use the situation to glorify himself and show who he was. 100% accurate. That's exactly right. God loved Pharaoh, wanted to reach Pharaoh, tried to reach Pharaoh, but still knew Pharaoh wouldn't allow himself to be reached. Yeah. yeah. So he used it still. Exactly. Exactly. Now listen to this. This is out of uh, Mind Character Personality, page 36. The Lord sends us warning, counsel, and reproof that we may have opportunity to correct our errors before they become second nature. But if we refuse to be corrected, God does not interfere to counteract the tendencies of our own course of action. He works no miracle that the seed sown may not spring up and bear fruit. That man, that man who manifests an infidel hardihood or a stolid indifference to divine truth is but, re, but reaping the harvest which he has himself sown. And there is a whole empty row right in front of me that I know many of you are just eager to jump right into. <laughs> which he himself has sown. Such has been the experience of many. They listen with stoical indifference to the truths that once stirred their, their very souls. They sowed neglect, indifference, and resistance to the truth, and such is the harvest which they reap. The coldness of ice, the hardness of iron, the impenetrable, unimpressible nature of rock. All this finds a counterpart in the character of many a professed Christian. It was thus that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God spoke to the Egyptian king by the mouth of Moses, giving him the most striking evidences of divine power. But the monarch stubbornly refused the light which would have brought him to repentance. God did not send a supernatural power to harden the heart of the rebellious king. But as Pharaoh resisted the truth, the Holy Spirit was withdrawn, and he was left to the darkness and unbelief which he had chosen. By persistent rejection of the Spirit's influence, men cut themselves off from God. He has in reserve no more potent agency to enlighten their minds. No revelation of his will can reach them in their unbelief. Do you hear this process? We are presented with truth. Truth that will convict our hearts and minds. We are left with the position to make decision. Will we embrace the truth? Will we be lover of the truth? Will we follow the truth? Will we resist the truth? It's our choice. If we resist the truth, we slowly harden and become less and less responsive to the point that we become hardened as rocks and truth cannot penetrate our minds anymore. Yes? I believe that God is all-powerful and He can do everything. There's some things that He can't or won't do, and that is He won't save sinners or Satan. Okay, God is all-powerful and can do anything, but there's some things He can't do. Oh, no, there's actually some things He can't do. There are things He cannot do. He cannot force. The Scriptures say God cannot lie. He cannot be tempted by evil. There's some things he cannot do. And the other thing he cannot do is he cannot, by the exercise of might and power, force a conversion upon someone. That's why it says, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. What God wants is love. Love cannot be coercively achieved. Try that on your spouse. Try it on your kids. You cannot get love by coercion. Yes? What you're describing about Pharaoh sounds like God letting him go. That's exactly what was happening. God presented truth, but left him free, left him free, left him free, left him free. And Pharaoh kept hardening and hardening and moving further and further and further away. Third and fourth paragraph in Sabbath's lesson. It says, the answer is found, as usual, by looking to the bigger picture of what Paul is saying. The answer is to what is meant by our memory verse. Paul is following a line of argument in which he attempts to show God's right to pick those whom he will use as his elected ones. After all, God is the one who carries the ultimate responsibility of evangelizing the world. Therefore, why can he not choose as his agents whomever he will? 
So long as God cuts no one off from the opportunity of salvation, such an action on God's part is not contrary to the principles of free will. Even more important, it's not contrary to the great truths that Christ died for all humans and his desire is that everyone come to salvation. As long as we remember that Romans 9 is not dealing with personal salvation of those of those it names, but with their call to certain work, the chapter presents no difficulty. I think there's a truth in this as well. But I think they may overplay it a little bit. For instance, if God calls Pharaoh to a certain work, and Pharaoh says no, and Pharaoh says no, and Pharaoh says no, and Pharaoh says no, will that eventually have an impact on his salvation? Yes, I, I, I wouldn't want to di- divorce them completely, that we can say no to God's calling for us as a purpose and a people, and still say that we can have salvation. Do you follow what I'm saying? If God calls us for mission, then we tell him no. We're not going to participate with you. And keep that idea in mind as we go through the rest of the lesson, because I'm going to tell you, every one of you in this room has been called for a mission at this time in Earth's history. We're going to discover what it is. See what, what you think about salvation if you say no to that mission. Yes. It seems like there's so much news and it's bad that you kind of tend to steal yourself against that in some way. And somehow it seems to be like that that affects how you receive other things that should be emotionally well said, well said. She says that so much news is bad and, and it really affects us and it can make it more difficult to, to, to receive other types of ideas and news. This is one of the devil's strategies. Remember, there are two antagonistic principles at war for our hearts and minds on planet Earth. God's principle of? Love. With war with Satan's principle of? And what's the emotion directly linked to self-centeredness? Fear. As soon as they sinned, they ran and hid because they were perfect love, casts out all fear. They're antagonistic to each other. What is most, what, if you sit down next time you get the news on, and just to a checklist of every story that comes on, ask the question, what is this news story inciting? And we, my, my wife and I did this just the other day. We did it for just 15 or 20 minutes. Every news story in a row, fear, 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 fear. The oil, the oil plume in, in the Gulf is going to do it up. Fear. The, the, uh, the uh, budget crisis. Obama's new plan to do that. What's going on in the Middle East? Da, 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 da. Fear. 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 Everything is bombarding to activate the fear circuits. And when fear circuits activate, they actually make it more difficult for us to perceive and understand truth. It turns us selfish. It turns us into self-protection mode. Which just is the opposite of God's plan that we are to be a people at the end of time these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. We are not concerned with self. We have been transformed to be concerned with others. And so I think part of the strategy is exactly as you say, to fill us with so much fear about what's happening around us that we lose our capacity to genuine love. You don't want your heart to be hardened, but you can't let all that stuff affect you so much. You know, so. Yeah. Does this mean because God has the right to call? We agree God has the right to call people to certain roles, don't we? Yes. Yes. Um, does that mean He forces people to take those roles? No. No. And then in the memory verse, it talks about we talked about the hardening part. What about the mercy? What is mercy? Undeserved forgiveness and love. Undeserved forgiveness and love. One of our online class members, John Nash, emailed me the following this week. I thought it was very nice. It says the word mercy has always implied to me that an authority figure was bending a law so that I would not experience the consequences, real or arbitrary, of my action. In that context, mercy always seemed at odds with justice. I have come to feel that in the context of Romans, Christians actually mix laws and God's action to create a confusing and contradictory explanation of what Paul was speaking about. It seems to me that showing mercy is in fact the extension of God's power to forestall the consequences of sin, while God's justice or righteousness is his dependable actions based upon his own law of love, saving and or letting go, always desiring to rescue and restore. His mercy is not the bending of his law at all. This seems so consistent with Micah 6.8. We should show mercy working to protect and save people from consequences of sin, act justly, applying the law of love to rescue or let go, and at all times walk humbly with God, following his leading, learning from him, developing a Christ-like character which leads to hope. What do you all think about his description of mercy? 
yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to me too. I thought he did a great job. There's also a forgiveness factor to mercy. It's not just the bending of the, of the results of the law, but mercy. Yeah, he didn't. He say he was actually saying the law doesn't get bent at all. Yeah, that was a distortion. Was he's alleging that he used to think that way, but but now he doesn't think that way at all. That the law never gets bent, and that the forgiveness aspect. Well, what? Where does forgiveness arise? Does it arise from the character of God in 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 His own nature, or does is it implanted there by the crucifixion of Christ, which stirs the forgiveness process in the heart of God, enables God, or equips God, or legally provides God the pretext that He's able to forgive? It's inherent in God. God is forgiveness, forgiving iniquity and sin is what the Scriptures tell us. It's in God. Yes. Exactly right. And God does God ever stop loving? So in, in regards to Lucifer, from God's attitude towards Lucifer to Satan, the, the enemy, does God have an unmerciful heart to Satan? No. Does he have a forgiving heart towards Satan? Does that save Satan? No, recognize it's not a legal process as it's often made out to be. If we can just get God to forgive, we can get him to pardon, then we can have salvation. That's not the issue. The issue is we are broken and we need fixing. Let's move on to see how this comes out in our lesson. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, God needed a missionary people to evangelize a world steeped in paganism, darkness, and idolatry. He chose the Israelites and revealed himself to them. He planned that they would become a model nation and thus attract others to the true God. It was God's purpose that by the revelation of his character through Israel, the world should be drawn to him. Through the teaching of the sacrificial service, Christ was to be uplifted before the nations, and all who would look upon unto him should live. As the number of Israel increased, as their blessings grew, they were to enlarge their borders until the kingdom should embrace the world. <clears throat> what happened? Was God's purpose realized? Did God provide ancient Israel with, shall we say, tools with blessings designed to help them achieve that goal. Can you list some of the things God gave them to help them? Ten commandments. Was it there to help them? Okay, crossroads of the world. Location. Location. Ten commandments. What else? Okay, sanctuary itself. Yes, that was a, a blessing to help, to teach. What about prophets? Were prophets sent to help? What about scripture? Was the scripture given to help? And the command. What about the Sabbath? Pardon? Miracle after miracle, and there's deliverance. Miracle deliverances. Yeah. What about health reform? Were they given a health reform? What about tithes and offerings? What about jubilees? So we look at these. The prophets were given for what purpose? To, to bring a message about the truths about God, right? Is that their purpose? What about the uh, scripture? What was it to reveal? God and, and the truth about the great controversy. Yeah, God and truth. Sanctuary service. What was it to reveal? What was it to teach them? The, the truth about God, the plan of salvation, deliverance from sin. The ten, truth about Satan. Uh, ten commandments in the Sabbath. To diagnose, to reveal God's character and to diagnose us. Tithes and offerings to participate in God's methods of giving, to, t- to, to teach us unselfishness. Yes, health reform to teach us His methods because we cannot heal outside of His laws, can we? Healing comes in harmony with His laws that He's designed life to operate upon. Spiritually, it's the same. Our spiritual healing comes as we get back in harmony with the laws He designed our life to operate upon, the law of love. Jubilees, opportunity to exercise trust in God and not go out and till your land. Let the lands lay fallow. Give back what you have, you know, taken in usury and so forth to trust in God. Opportunity to trust. Yes. Let's back up a little bit. The Israelites will remember the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to humanity at creation. Yes. I've talked with friends and, and people who have been raised in the church, and, and there's a subtle perception that the Sabbath was given from outside. Yeah, I, no, absolutely right. 
if it wasn't, it was a command to remember because it had been given. And that's true. Thanks, thanks for that clarification. But were the Jews then again re-emphasized was a part of what they were to be, and it was to teach them lessons. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for clarifying that. What happened to each one of these blessings? Let's just go through them one by one. What happened to the blessing of the prophets given to the Jewish nation? Rejected and murdered. Rejected and murdered. Okay. What happened to the scriptures given to the Jews nation? Neglected? Were they neglected? Ah, distorted and twisted to teach what kind of a God? Remember Christ said, you, you search the scriptures because in them you think you find eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. You search the world over to find a convert and when you do, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. Did they know their scripture? When, when, they, when, when Herod said, hey, where is this child to be born? Was it hard for them to tell? Bethlehem. The scepter comes out of Bethlehem. They knew. They knew what the scripture said. But did they twist it to teach a distorted picture of God so that when God came and stood among them, they said, yes, this is our God. We have waited for him. No, 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 no. We don't like this guy. Let's kill him. Yeah. How about the sanctuary service? What happened yet? Given as a blessing, what happened? Did it become legalistic? Teach a legalistic payment appeasement system. What about the commandments and the Sabbath? What happened to them? Did they become a badge of honor? A burden, burdened with rules? Test of obedience? Or even a method of salvation? Did you know they taught if we could just keep the Torah perfectly for a day, Messiah will come. We can just do it. We will do it. A, a, a means of salvation. What about health reform? What happened to that? It became spiritual work and a point of pride. And tithes and offerings, a means of boasting and exploitation. Jubilees, they were ignored. Mm -hmm. So, question through all this, as we look at Israel's blessing, calling, and apostasy from their calling, was there a remnant in Israel that remained loyal? And were there and served and worshipped the true God when he came? Yes, there was. And with this twisting and perversion, what actually happened to the picture of God? And I'm going to read to you out of Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890, one, one paragraph. It's a long paragraph. Christ came to save fallen man, and Satan with fiercest wrath met him on the field of conflict. What is the field of conflict? That's exactly right. It's not a physical field. It is a battle over ideas, minds, concepts. 2 Corinthians 10 through 5. We destroy everything which sets itself up against the knowledge of God. For the enemy knew that when divine strength was added to human weakness, keep that in mind, divine strength added to your and my human weakness, man was armed with power and intelligence and could break away from the captivity in which he had bound him. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. He sought to cast a shadow across the earth that men might lose the true views of God's character. This is the heart of it from the beginning in heaven, spreading to earth, and continues today. And you're going to see this is going to be the key to bringing the end uh, and the culmination of events here in where we live. It says that the true views of God might become extinct on the earth. He had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it had lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belonged to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent him before the fallen children of earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was a living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish the work. The only way he could set and keep men right, what is another word for setting men right? Justification. We've been talking about justification. Setting right. Keeping right sanctification. The only way he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. What is the only way? The only mechanism? Truth about God destroys lies, wins us back to trust, sets our heart right with him again. That men might have salvation, he came directly to man and became a partaker of his nature. And then, 
With that in mind, I want to jump to Friday's lesson and read question number two. Question number two from Friday. And it says, How do you see the Seventh-day Adventist Church and its calling in the world today paralleling the role of ancient Israel in its day? What are the similarities and the differences? In what ways are we doing better? Or are we doing worse? Justify your answer. You get a bonus point. No. <laughs> what was ancient Israel's purpose? What were they called? What was the purpose of their calling? To reveal the character of God for a purpose. What was the purpose? To prepare the world for the advent of the Messiah. What is the purpose of the, this movement we call Seventh-day Adventism? What is its purpose? To reveal the truth about God for what purpose? Prepare the world for the second advent of the Messiah. Is there parallel purposes here? Yeah. So, we already went through a list of what God blessed ancient Israel with to help them in their purpose. What did God bless the Adventist church with to help us in our purpose? Did we have a prophet? Yes. We have scripture? Yes. We have a sanctuary message? Yes. We have Ten Commandments, Sabbath? Yes. We have health reform? Yes. We have tithes and offerings? Okay, let's go through what happened to those. <laughs> what happened to our prophet? She was shipped to Australia by church leadership because they didn't want to listen to her anymore. You know that's why she went to Australia. I have no word from the Lord that I am to go to Australia, but that's what the leadership wants, so they sent her to Australia. And what about the church's attitude worldwide towards her today? Are, are we acting towards her like the Jews did toward their prophets? Sure we are. Absolutely. Increasingly rejecting. Scripture. Do we struggle today in our church with twisting and misrepresenting the Scripture such that we present a severe and punitive God? Do we struggle with that? Hmm. How about the sanctuary message? Has it ever been presented legalistically? <laughs> Has it ever been presented other than legalistically? I mean, what? I mean, if you get, get your mind around what this, the, the general presentation. Anybody want to just throw out the, the common ways this, our sanctuary message is presented? There's a court going on in heaven. We have a high priest who's on our side, pleading our case. Pleading our case for the Father. Yes, and if you've confessed all the sins, they go up beforehand into judgment. There's a legal transaction going on. It's legalistic. Is it any real different than what they did? Bring your, bring your sacrifice. Pay your legal debt. Legalistic. Wow. How about the commandments in the Sabbath? Are they a badge of honor that our church holds up with pride? We are the only true commandment people. We are the remnant people of God. This is the remnant church. We have the truth. Does the Sabbath ever become burdened with needless exactions? You can wade, but water above the knee becomes sin. Nobody ever had that but me, huh? Oh, some of you also had that, huh? Okay. Yes. Yes, my wife told me, I'm going to tell a story on you, Christy. My wife told me when she was a, a, a child that uh, they went to the beach one Sabbath. Her dad's a retired pastor, you know. And uh, she loves the water and loves the beach. She was out fully enjoying the ocean. And her dad said, what are you doing? And she says, I'm playing in God's nature. <laughs> and that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> the, the remnant factor has comes down to the point of the inheritance factor. We are the remnant. It is our church, it is our message, it is the church, it is the message, it is the message, it is the message, it is the I may be wrong in reading Romans, but in Romans it says, well, you know, there's other people of other walks that you should discount to the presence of other walks. And that they will be saved as well. Exactly. And that, that arrogance factor is, is Did, Was there an arrogance factor in the Jewish nation? Oh, sure. oh, yeah. yeah. Do we risk that today? Yes. yes. Ellen White is actually, if, you, if we read her widely, she's brilliant on this. And she talks about how God has his, his shining lights 
in all the nations of the world that at the end of time, as this time of trouble comes upon us, these people will become brilliant stars in the darkness of the misrepresentation about God. And they were never part of this movement, but he has them. The example of Elijah, when he thought he was the only one, there were 7,000 who hadn't bent the knee. He didn't know about them. Let's go on. Um, What about health reform? Has it become a spiritual work? A point of pride in our church? Is there a certain, um, I don't know, if you're holier if you don't eat cheese? <laughs> oh, but I, I just want to throw something out, guys. Let's just, let's just diverse a little bit on the science here. Casein protein, which is the, the protein in cow's milk, actually interferes with the human DNA repair mechanism so that to a, when you're exposed to a toxin that will contribute to can, cancer because of a DNA mutation, we have repair mechanisms in our DNA. We'll repair that and fix that. Casein protein in cow's milk paralyzes or interferes with that repair mechanism, so cow's milk increases your risk of cancer across the board. And it's not the fat which elevates your cholesterol and stuff. It's the protein in the cow's milk. So I know what we'll do. We'll get veggie shreds instead. Look on veggie shreds. The protein in veggie shreds is casein protein from cow's milk. Okay? Yeah, look at the label. It'll tell you casein protein. You're not getting a big, you're not getting advantage. We're just eat, enjoy the real cheese. It tastes a lot better than veggie shreds. Okay? Yes? And we have gone to meetings all over this United States. The Adventists are the least in the Yeah, other thoughts, yes. Yeah, I won't even comment on that. I was tempted. So, when we go down these lists of blessings, has our church also been blessed by God? Yes. To do what? What have these blessings been given to us to accomplish? Great Controversy 593. See what you think about this. In order to endure the trial before them, speaking of the people who withstand during the time of trouble, they must understand the will of God as revealed in his word. They can honor him only as they have a right conception of his character, government, and purposes, and act in accordance with them. If we don't have a right understanding of his character, government, and purposes, we can't honor him and stand in this time. So, do we, do we feel we're getting, uh, in our class here, a sense of the true character of God is revealed in Jesus? Yes. Which is the character of? Love. And we understand, we've talked many times about the principles of his government, which are the principles of? Love. love. But what about his purposes for us in this time? Do we have a real sense of that and act in accordance with it? Listen to this, and of course you've heard this before. It is the darkness and misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misrepresented. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory. Fear God and give glory to him. Keep in mind, what is that glory? We're going to come back to it. The light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. Is it God's purpose for this revelation? And by the way, what is the glory? Character. It is his character. 
Is it God's purpose that the message of his character, the message of his glory is to go to the world? Yes. How? Do we have a part to play in that purpose? Christ Object Lesson 69. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of the Lord. Were all who profess his name bearing the fruit of his glory, which is what? Character. How quickly the world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would ripen and Christ would come to gather his precious grain. Are you tired of this world? Would you like to be gathered? Yes. Do we have a purpose? Is there a purpose for you and me? Do we actually have a role to play? Are we bought into this idea? And I'm going to tell you the idea is rife within Christianity. And, 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 it, and it stems from a misunderstanding of God's character, misunderstanding of his law, misunderstanding of the nature of sin, and therefore a misunderstanding of the gospel message, which has turned it all to a legal transaction, penal substitution. God has paid our penalty. All we have to do is accept penalty, and we sit and wait until he comes to get us. You're going to find that there's a different purpose that God has. God has a purpose. We are to fear him, which means be in awe, be in admiration, not to be terrified. Perfect love casts out all fear. So it's not casting out admiration, but it is casting out terror, dread, anxiety, worry. Cast that out. We are in awe and admiration. Fear God and give glory to him for, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment, which historically has been presented as the hour he sits up in judgment. Well, Romans, Romans chapter 3, Paul says, God may you win your case when you take it into court. Fear God, give him glory, show his character in you, lighten the world, because God is being judged. People are making their decision. Who will they serve? Who will they believe in? Well, is there a scripture that would support us in this? Revelation 18.1. Listen to this carefully. After these things, I saw another angel coming down out of heaven, having great authority, and the earth was lighted with his glory. What is this angel? Anybody know? Is this a celestial being, a seraph or a cherubim that is talking about here? The three angels of Revelation 14, are they seraphs and cherubims or are they a people? A last day movement, a messenger. Which is it? It's a people. This is not a seraph or a cherubim it's talking about here. This is a last day movement. Just, this, is, this is the culmination of the three angels' message is what this is. And it says, notice, notice very carefully, I hope you have your Bible out and you're checking me on this. I saw another angel, another people, coming down out of heaven, having great authority, and the earth was lighted with whose glory? Notice, it's, it's, it's not, it says lighted with God's glory, it's lighted with the glory that comes from the angel. Now how can that be? Do any of us possess any glory? Hmm. Yeah, so the glory comes from God, but does the glory become so, does the character of God become perfectly reproduced in his people? And when the character of God is perfectly reproduced in his people, then guess what our characters look like? So will we, will we lighten the world with his glory by our characters looking like his? Look at this. Like Moses, coming down off the mountain, exactly. Listen to this. A question. Do you actually expect God to carry forward his glory, his character, the lighting of the world in your life? Do you, under, do you, do you, do you expect to be part of the purpose? Do you expect to be a vehicle through whom God can lighten the world? Well, this is out of um, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, 22 through 27. Listen to these words. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which is my character. Right? Name, character, yeah? Which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. 
I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Now, is this speaking only to ancient Israel? Or could it speak to a group of people at the end time who have gone out and talked about a vengeful and revengeful God who has to have an intercessor plead to him, mercy, mercy, to don't take vengeance and don't lash out. And, and a God is presented that says, if you don't accept the blood payment on your behalf, he will torture you what you deserve. Are we, are we profaning the name of God when we do these things? Listen to what it says in Ezekiel. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy. What's it say? Through you. Before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Does God have a purpose for a people? A people that he will heal and restore and regenerate. It's not a work we're going to do. But it's a privilege that we get to participate in. That we get to be filled with His presence, with His Spirit. That our thoughts come into unity with His. Our desires come into unity with His. The, the old is t- gone. The new has come. And we get to glorify Him as we live His life on earth. And so, following up on the Ezekiel text, we have Christ's Object Lessons 4.14. In the parable, the wise virgins had oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now keep in mind this idea of lighting the world with His glory, preparing the world for Christ's coming, what purpose God has. Is there some purpose we have that He's waiting for? Why is the delay coming? Think, think through as we listen to the, and think through the parable of the ten virgins. Their light burned with undimmed flame through the night of watching. When we think about the darkness, the midnight cry. Okay, it's, it's dark, right? It's a dark time. What, what type of darkness? Is this physical light darkness it's talking about? What type of darkness is it talking about? Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. Notice, the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, a thick darkness is over the people, but the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Notice, during the dark time, when there's darkness and misapprehensions about God, what I read in the Christ Object Lessons earlier, it is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of His character. This is the midnight that we are in. As you look around the world, is our church being enveloped in darkness? Yes. And so, their light burned with undimmed flame through the night of watching. It helped to swell the illumination for the bridegroom's honor. Shining out in the darkness, it, it, what's it? The light, and what's the light? Their character, the Christ's character reproduced with them, helped to illuminate the way to the home of the bridegroom, to the marriage feast. So the followers of Christ are to shed light into the darkness of the world. Through the Holy Spirit, God's word is a light as it becomes a transforming power in the life of the receiver. By implanting in their hearts the principle of his word, the Holy Spirit develops in men the attributes of God. What does that mean, the attributes of God? His character, the character traits of God are reproduced in us through the Spirit. The light of His glory, His character, is to shine forth in His followers. Thus they are to glorify God, to lighten the path to the bridegroom's home, to the city of God, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you see a purpose? Have we sat passively waiting for Him to carry out the purpose? What did that other one say? Then when you hear this, and back up to that purpose. In order to endure the, endure the trial before them, they must understand that the will of God is revealed in His Word. They can honor Him only as they have a right conception of His character, government, and purposes, and act in accordance with them. Have we understood that He has a purpose for us to fulfill? Not to work our way into heaven. We can't do that. But to cooperate with Him, to partake of Him, to trust Him, to give Him freedom in our lives, to embrace the truth and willfully choose to follow where it leads. To live lives as He lived when He was here. 
Do we believe that? Or is that just pie in the sky? Because this is one of the deceptions. There is no victory. There's only legal pardon. Do we believe there's victory to live a life that loves others? And this is where the focus is. When, 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 when Jesus spoke in the New Testament, be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, the context was what? Love. Love, Love your enemies, he said. If you, treat your, uh, if you are only kind to your family, that's what the tax collectors do. Love those who mistreat you. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the issue is one of character. Are we moving away from a fear-based, self-based, me-based life to where through God's grace we experience love for him and love for others we will give of ourselves to bless others? That's what the world needs to see. Questions? Jews were looking for power and justice. They wanted things. They were whip up on the Romans and everyone. They were the Messiah. And common Christianity teaches that Christ is coming back with a rod of iron to rule the nations. Hmm. Wow. Other thoughts? Do you find this moving? Compelling? Yes. Two brief comments. Light is very, very different than darkness. But we that are supposed to be the light, we want to kind of blend into the darkness in our everyday lives. We don't want to be called fanatical. We don't want to be called radical. We don't want to be called you know, any of those. And especially this day and time in the last decade or so, we don't want to be called Christian, much less Adventist. Second comment, I'd like to spend a few moments or thoughts on how we're different in the early Jewish church. We listed a bunch of ways for we're the same. But really, are we consigned to be just like them and their failures and, and, and things like this? Or is there uh, ways that were different where there's a little bit of hope? I don't think they were consigned. I think it was their own conclusions and their own direction. I don't think we're consigned. I think us, like them, are given an opportunity and a direction. It's up to us to capitalize on that opportunity and direction. Do you see ways that we are substantially different than the nation of, of Israel 2,000 years ago? At the advent of the first, the, fir- the first advent of the Messiah, are we substantially different? Well, yes. the, the 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 Advent Church, the Adventist Church, uh, right? The organized Adventist Church. The desire to spread the message everywhere instead of Okay, so the Adventist Church does have a desire to go into the dark counties of the world. And and a dark county is defined by a county in which there is no love and grace, or a county where there's no Adventist church. Huh? Interesting, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Are we uh, in this day and age? Have we had the opportunity to give any more truth than they that they weren't ready for back then? That's yeah, opportunity to give more truth than they weren't ready for. I, I like the way you say they weren't ready for. Christ said to his own apostles, "I have much to tell you, but you can't bear it." Does that mean that God was restrictive and withholding and didn't want them to have more light? No, God was willing to give them more light, but they couldn't bear it. Are we any more willing to bear light now? Remember the prophecy of Malachi? The prophecy of Malachi, the sun, S-U-N, S-U-N of righteousness is rising with healing in his traditional wings that the, the Hebrew there actually means the things that extend out from. And what is it extends out from the S-U-N? Rays or beams. So most of the modern translations say he's rising with healing in his rays or beams. And if you think about this, the sun, this is an end time prophecy. There's darkness in the world. This is a spiritual darkness. So this is a metaphor. But let's say you're in a cave. And you've been in this cave and this darkness with absolutely no light for a week. And now you're rescued. And they bring you out on July or August, bright sunny day, noontime. What happens if they try to take you out? After a week in the darkness. Do you actually try to run back in the cave? Okay. What happens if they bring you out at 4 a.m. and let you sit there while the sun rises? No problem, right? The sun of righteousness is rising. Rising right now in time. Rising, rising. More and more and more and more and more light is being shown. Spiritual light, spiritual truth is being shown down upon the world. Those who are embracing it, partaking of it, ingesting it, applying it, are gathering more and more and more of that light. Thus, when he comes, we are glad to see him. But those who have hidden in the caves of the dark concepts of God and preferred those over the truth, when, they, when he comes, they do exactly 
they run and hide and beg for the mountains to fall on them, to hide him, hide them from him who sits on the throne. So the sun is rising. Are we going to embrace that truth and light? Yes. Well, we have one tremendous blessing that they didn't have is that we have a historical perspective. We've seen all the history in the past. We're living in the last maybe 11 o'clock night. I don't know, but we have an advantage that they didn't have. Advantage of the history. I like that. That's true. There's no question we have that. Wouldn't you have liked to have been able to sit at the feet of Jesus? I mean, wouldn't you have liked to have just slapped a couple of those disciples on the head? Yes. <laughs> Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Right. But we have opportunities that they didn't have. Yeah, we have opportunities that they didn't have. There's no question about it. But wouldn't it have been nice, though, to sit there and ask a few questions? Come on. I mean, come on. Who wouldn't have liked that? We got a little time machine. Where are you going in history? I'm going there. Huh? Okay. They were all martyred except John, and they tried to martyr him. Yeah, that's true. They did not love their life so much as shrink from death. Okay, um, in, was there a remnant in Israel? Yes. Will there be a remnant? Is the remnant the organized church, or is the remnant from the organized church? And I don't mean a remnant, excuse me, the remnant of Israel, did they constitute the exclusive saved group of humanity? Or is the remnant of Israel the group from which they continued the mission of spreading the word that converted the world? So when I talk about a remnant from this group, I'm not talking about a remnant for exclusive salvation. I'm talking about is there going to be a group within the group that will actually fulfill the purpose to lighten the world from which all nations, kindreds, tribes, and people will be saved? Judgment begins with the household of God. Uh, is that God judging us or is that our coming to the right judgment about him? I like it. I like it. So, with this uh, quote, then it goes to Thursday's lesson talking about a remnant in Israel. And this is uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 27 to 32. This is out of the NIV. Isaiah cried out concerning Israel Though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had previous, said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. What shall we then say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is, as it is written, See, I lay, as, lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And because we're running low on time, I'm just going to go ahead and read my paraphrase of these same verses. You can follow along as I read my paraphrase, starting in verse 25. Um, as he said to Hosea, I will call them my representatives who are not my representatives. And I will call her the conduit of my love who had previously rejected my love. And it will happen that even though they were told, you do not represent me, they will be changed in character and called sons of the living God. Isaiah declares concerning Israel, though the genetic descendants of Abraham are as numerous as the sands of the sea, only a small remnant will accept the remedy and be healed. For the Lord will carry out his diagnosis on the earth with accuracy and certainty. It is sadly, as Isaiah has said, If the Lord Almighty hadn't worked so hard, so patiently, so diligently to preserve us, we would have no descendants. We would have ended up like Sodom. We would have ended up like Gomorrah. How then do we understand this? It is very simple. The Gentiles, who had no idea they were infected with selfishness and were therefore dying, and certainly didn't have a clue that a remedy to heal them was available, therefore didn't pursue God's healing cure. But when they became aware of their condition and that a cure existed, obtained it by trust in him who heals and restores. But Israel, who knew their condition, and knew a cure was available, who had been given the teaching tools designed to lead them back to trust, did not attain it. Why not? Instead of trusting God and accepting his free remedy, they attempted to cure themselves by their own efforts. Thus they stumbled over the stumbling stone, refusing to trust in him, as it is written, See, I have placed in Zion a stone of truth that reveals the stumbling and shortcoming of men and a rock of righteousness that exposes how far short they fall. But the one who trusts in him will be completely healed and never stumble or fall again. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we 
stumble before you. And we ask that your spirit will take all that Christ has done for us. Fill our hearts. Cleanse the the chambers of the spirit temple. Reproduce your character in us. May we understand the truth of your character. May we understand the principles of your government. And may we understand and participate in your purposes for your people at this time in history. That through our love for you and our love for each other, that your character and your glory will shine forth at this end time and that you will come to take us home and that a multitude will be saved by the witness of your glory and the lives of your people. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.